So, Kevin, I have some pick 100 stats. Stats. So, like, Jeff's superlative look at what we've done so far? Yeah, the statistics of the bottom 50, because after today's episode, we will be done with half of the list. Lay them on me. All right, so, so far, we've covered 95 albums because we've had five matches. Hmm, okay, interesting. Only five. I, I thought it would be more, but I think it's going to be a lot more in the in the top 50 than in the bottom sure. 50. Sure, and what, so what were those five? Uh, Queen the Game, Moby Play, Madonna Like a Virgin, 10,000 Maniacs in My Tribe, and as we will find out in a few moments, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Aha, okay, and there will be more, I know yeah. it. So 95 albums, and by decade we have four from the 60s, 14 from the 70s, wow. 30 from the 80s, 19 from the 90s, 16 from the aughts, 11 from the tens, and only one from the 20s. So let me guess. The 70s and 80s are mostly me, and the uh, 90s no, are almost pretty, all you. We're pretty evenly distributed among decades. Um, Even the 90s? Well, the 90, we had 30 in the 80s. That's more than 11 more than the next place, which is 90s. So, Right, but I'm saying you dominated in the 90s, yes. I'm sure. Yes. And then we also have uh, some repeat bands. You had three with U2, Madonna, and Mellencamp. Yeah. And I had four with Zeppelin, R.E.M., Madonna, and soon we will find out a fourth band. Wow. That, that, that Jeff right there is anticipation. Who's uh, addressing diversity better as far as uh, gender? <laughs> well, that would be me with 14 female or female-fronted bands. Wow. And your you, second you've... place with 11. Okay. So, so not bad. Continue the shaming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've had eight greatest hits compilation. I've had five. You've mm. had two various artists' albums, and I've had one. I've had two various artists. I guess yeah. that must be Anchorman. Uh, Anchorman. And, yeah, Anchorman and uh, Saturday Night Fever. Oh, there you go. But I've also uh, found another metric, if you will. Okay. I looked at the Rolling Stone top 500 albums of all time. Now, you know, they redid this list last year. Oh, they've done it, redone it three times. Yeah, they redid well, it twice. last year, though, and this time it wasn't just kind of a revision. It was actually just to blow it up and start over. And they, well, yeah. they, they pulled like 300 people in music production, music artists, everything. Mm -hmm. It's much more diverse than it ever used to be because it also often got a lot of criticism as being you know very whitewashed. Sure. Now it's uh, loaded with much more soul. Marvin Gaye is now number one, displacing Sgt. Pepper's. Mm -hmm. Much more rap and hip-hop. But I, I scored our bottom 50 with placement on that list. Oh, I think you've probably got me there. Yes. Um, I had 16. You had 12. No, that's not bad. And if you do reverse scoring, so Marvin Gaye would be 500 points. The 500th album would be one point. Oh, interesting. I scored 4,949. You scored 3,835. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, you've done some work here, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was kind of fun, actually, but to, to okay. find that stuff out. But I, I was actually surprised. Like, Rosalia mm -hmm. was 315th on that list. Her album that I put on my list, I, I thought somewhat boldly, yes. <laughs> was actually on the 2020 Rolling Stone Greatest Albums list. I have to look at this list more carefully, because and so is Billie Eilish, and so is M.I.A., some of these albums that I... I feel like I'm kind of alone and and yelling about. Well, not Billie Eilish, but yeah. Well, clearly you're not. And I, they did shuffle the deck quite a bit in terms of the participants on that list. I think uh, they shuffled out kind of the old school sort of tired critics that they'd had and brought in some new voices. Definitely, definitely. Like Stevie Wonder's Talking Book, which you'd chose. That's number fifty nine of all time on that yeah. list. Yeah. Uh, that's where we stand on the bottom 50, and we're uh, about ready to turn the corner into the top 50. But first, we got to knock out 60 through 51 in this episode of The Pick 100. I'm Jeff Payne. 
From Portland, Oregon, I'm Kevin Toon. Welcome to the PICS Top 100 Countdown. So, Kevin, you know, we got a call on the pick line from my sisters. Ooh, interesting. Well, I mean, they're, they're definitely... Uh, Two of our most regular listeners. Yes, and it's been a whole year now, and they didn't manage to get on the show until now. But they, they took a little bit of a liberty. They gave us a, a two-and-a-half-minute call to hmm. go over their favorite albums and also recount some of our uh, childhood musical experiences together. <laughs> well, it's distinguished already by its... Uh, that's got to be the longest call we've received, so that's good. Yes. And, you know, 2020 was an odd year, Jeff, so it's okay that they took their time and, and got prepared. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I appreciate it, too. And uh, the pick line is still open for anyone that wants to call. That's for the pick three, four, four, the pick three, four. Call that and leave your message with your favorite albums of all time. So I may sound like a broken record, but I do get a little more excited each episode as we get closer and the, and the albums are more cherished each time. It changes a lot. I mean, there's we mentioned there's not only going to be the overlap or the repet, you know, the, the duplication factor. So if you look at the Rolling Stone list, you know, it changes when you do it in 2003 versus 2020. The perspective is different. Yeah. If we did it in two years, it might find itself in a completely different place because you've just reconnected with it or discovered a new depth to a particular selection. Well, I think so. by the time we finish this list, we'll just have to start over and do it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say, you know, there's a, there's been a, can, a couple of moments already where I'm like, ooh, that really probably should have made the list. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we'll see. All right, well, you, you get a start today, so what are we going to start with? All right, so we're going to start with a biggie, and it's safe to say that there's really not a bigger album than Michael Jackson's Thriller, certainly in my, my lifetime and probably not in the history of rock music. Without a doubt, this album has absolutely earned all of the critical praise and accolades that it's received. Jeff, it was a true phenomenon during its time and probably best exemplified by this song, the title track, and its accompanying milestone music video. That thing was 15 minutes long, a world premiere event on MTV, and it definitely lived up to the hype. With seven of its nine tracks, seven of the nine reaching top 10 status on the Billboard charts, Thriller is truly in a class by itself. It's the greatest selling pop album of all time. And for me, Jeff, it's kind of odd that it would land at only number 60 on my list, but we are ranking favorites. And one factor in this process is how often we listen to a given album. I just don't listen to it that much these days. I honestly don't know why, uh, but I do have a theory. It's probably because this album feels more like a greatest hits collection and it has an odd flow to it. When you bought it as a vinyl record and put it on your turntable, side one was okay, but you had to wait until side two until you heard big hits like this one, Beat It, or Billie Jean or Human Nature. I would actually recommend listening to this album in the order in which the singles were released. So you'd start with uh, The Girl Is Mine and then go right to Billie Jean and then Beat It and then Human Nature, Want to Be Starting Something, etc., etc. Looking out across the 
And the reason I say that is because that's how I actually experienced this record. I didn't buy it and then start hearing the songs on the radio. I started hearing the songs on the radio in this specific order, and it just plays better. Yeah, that's an interesting take. Uh, this album was also lower on my list, and for the same kind of reason that you said. In fact, when I covered this album, I believe I said that I don't believe I've listened to this album since probably college or high school mm-hmm. as, a, as an album, but you still hear the songs all the time. And, you know, I occasionally will DJ for weddings or dances and want to be starting something is, uh, you know, one of those go-to songs you mm-hmm. always want to play for a dance. And listening to it in a different order is kind of an interesting take because I, you know, I can't say I really want to listen to this album because I'm not crazy about some of the songs. I just like mm. the fast ones now. I'm not, you know, I don't need to hear Human Nature or the Paul McCartney thing anymore. Yeah. You know, but the presence of this album in my life means it will always be on my list of favorite albums because like we talked about we balance it between what we still love now and and how big the album was for us at a time i can't say i would honestly after you know revisiting it will spend any more time going forward listening to it but what struck me is what an amazing achievement this this album was is and always will be the the stories are legendary about you know, Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones basically not being satisfied with the first take and starting over and spending like a week remixing every song until they got this final product. And it also, I think it it has to be said that uh, every bit of part of the achievement of this uh, record, the credit should go to Quincy Jones, in my opinion, as much as Michael Jackson. Uh, the production, the Quincy Jones, Michael Jackson albums were, I think, a class above everything else he did. I always wonder too, will it ever be unseated as the highest selling album of all time? Because when you think of all time, <laughs> meaning the future yeah. as well, we, right. are, we are really early in the creation of rock and roll and the release of an album. Sure. And it will still sell for years oh, yeah. and centuries and or decades and maybe centuries to come. So will it ever be unseated? Will there ever be an album bigger than that, that after many decades will surpass it? And even if there is, it's still going to always have that distinction of doing it first. Yep. At my number 60 is Led Zeppelin's fifth album and the first one to have an actual title rather than just a number. It's Houses of the Holy. So Kevin, is this... Your maker or dire maker? I, I <laughs> I've always called it dire maker. I, I'm not sure. I, I think I call it your maker, but I, I don't know. I believe this is one of the few albums in rock history where every single song got rotation on rock radio when we were younger. I'll bet. And I think the other ones, the other albums in that class, also belong to Led Zeppelin. I was going to say Led Zeppelin Four has yeah. to be there. Too. I think Four, One, and maybe Two, all of them wow. <laughs> were like that. <laughs> so it's more from being, you know, a devoted KISW listener back in my high school days than listening to this album as it is that I know all these songs so well. This song is Over the Hills and Far Away. It's always been one of my favorite Led Zeppelin tunes. Oh yeah. Um, And I love when the songs go from kind of quiet acoustic into just an explosion of rock, which this song does. It's also one of the reasons I like PJ Harvey so much. He does this brilliantly. But Zeppelin has several songs that do it, and this is one of my favorites. Yeah. 
time they made the album, the band was rich and famous already, and so the album's production benefited from several members installing their own home studios. So they were able to really tweak and work on each song. So they had many different versions and layers, and it's kind of considered a bit of a departure sonically from their first four albums. Being a little cleaner, a little less Mm. bluesy, a little less distortion. And it was called by one critic, a diverse collection of rockers, ballads, reggae, funk, and 50s-style rock and roll. So, Jeff, you said first four albums. So, to clarify, this is the follow-up to Led Zeppelin IV. Yes. So, I think important to note, when a band can follow up something so epic like Led Zeppelin IV, such a colossal, you know, monumental rock record with something this good uh that's no small achievement either definitely not and you know it wasn't considered this good when it came out like like Mm -hmm. led zeppelin's earlier work you know some of the critics weren't crazy about this one but it's just survived and all these songs you just hear so often oh yeah and they recorded a lot more for this album too in fact i mean even the title track houses of the holy was not on this album it was put on physical graffiti so right several songs on physical graffiti were recorded during these sessions and that's probably one of the reasons that album is double length this is how many zeppelin records so far for you on the top 100 this is only my second okay all right well excellent pick one of my favorite albums and and uh sneak peek audience this one will come back around All right, that's my number 60, Led Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy. All right, we now go to our meditation lady countdown guru. Once again, notice how you feel. Feel that sense of relief which comes with a gradual, systematic letting go. This is time for rest. 59. She's getting a little breathy there. (laughs) So was that a, was that a coincidental uh, placement of that, or uh, the you know a happy accident? Because we're about to enter another one of those picks by me that is going to put you to sleep. Everything I do is intentional, Kevin. I figured as much. Well, this is number fifty nine for me. This is the greatest hits collection from nineteen seventy two by Simon and Garfunkel, and it falls into that category that really can't be listened to any other way than beginning to end. No skipping around when you're listening to this collection. The flow from track one to track fourteen is key here. It's the first compilation record from Simon and Garfunkel's category, and it was released two years after they went their separate ways. All right, Kevin, just, uh, Kevin I'm just going by your list here. You want me to skip now from song one to song five? Uh, yeah. Okay, so I was just making sure since you just said we shouldn't skip. Oh, <laughs> I didn't think about that. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Once again, I've, I've not seen the landmine that Jeff puts in front of my feet. Uh, because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. To me, one of the coolest features of this collection is the interweaving of live tracks and studio recordings. It's not something you see with most greatest hits compilations, but here it really works to give the listener the full, I think, appreciation of this pair's amazing compositions. Streets of 
So this album has proven a long and durable seller. Currently certified for 14 million units sold in the U.S. alone. It's easily their best-selling album in the U.S. Also holds the record in the U.S. for the best-selling album by a duo. In 2003, Rolling Stone ranked it 293 on its list of 500 greatest albums of all time. All lies in chess, still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. For me, Jeff, this is yet another example of an album that takes me back to a specific place in time. My oldest sister introduced me to this record when I was probably five years old, and then I rediscovered it in college when uh, the CD clubs were offering seven for a penny. It offers amazing vocal harmonies, sophisticated songwriting and lyrics, and the added bonus of the unique energy of live performance. Jeff. I can only imagine the way your skin probably crawled when you had to preview this selection. That is, if you were even awake after five minutes of listening. I'm, I'm re referring, of course, to you not exactly being enchanted by my earlier pick of James Taylor, so I'm not exactly optimistic about your review. Uh, well, you'd be wrong. I, uh, <laughs> I like Simon and Garfunkel. I don't listen to them a lot, but their music has special resonance for me because I've always been a big fan of The Graduate. Uh -huh. um, and you played Mrs. Robinson as the first song, which is also the first song in this collection. So although I don't uh, regularly listen to this record, I always enjoy hearing their songs in a mix and have that affinity for them that James Taylor does not share. <laughs> but as I said then, I do like James Taylor just fine. I just don't really want to listen to that, listen to that collection. I'm very glad to hear that, Jeff. And I believe there are others. I, don't, I can't state them for a fact, but I believe there are other tracks on this collection that were featured in The Graduate as well. Yes, there were, definitely. They had a lot of songs in there. Now, have you listened to any of their uh, individual records much? Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> yeah. Okay, jumping from Mrs. Robinson to track five, Songs of Silence, and then back to track three of The Boxer. Yeah, I should, heard. yeah I should mention, do not do that at home. It's just strictly done for purposes of this countdown. All right, at number 59, it's R.E.M.'s Green, which was the first R.E.M. album to be released after I decided I liked them. So this was the first release I was actually excited about, and I was not disappointed. The first two tracks are just alternative pop joy. From the oddly named Pop Song 89, straight into the oddly themed Get Up. This was 1988, my senior year. Kevin, we were roommates. I remember. You remember listening to this album in our apartment? Frequently. I have specific memories whenever I hear this album of, I don't know, just walking through the apartment with it cranked while I was making cheese and rice or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you were uh, yeah, you minored in nutrition, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. After the first two tracks, though, we get kind of a new sound from R.E.M., the mandolin. Sometimes I feel like I can't even sing. I'm very scared for this world. I'm very scared for me. They may have overkilled it a bit on this album. They have three songs that are mandolin-led that all kind of well, sound a little bit the same, but it was also a precursor to what would become their biggest hit ever, Losing My Religion, which came out on the follow-up to this, Out of Time, a couple years later. That's interesting about the mandolin. I did not know that. Uh, 
it sort of reveals that I don't listen to Green very much. I like the record, I just don't listen to it. I actually thought Mandolin made its debut with Losing My Religion. I did I did recently watch that Netflix uh, show about that particular song, and uh, Peter Buck was experimenting with the mandolin. I guess here is where it really first made it onto one of their records. I do remember thinking this is different from anything they'd done before uh, on their previous albums, so it was the start of their mandolin days, if you will. <laughs> I also remember Green as sort of being the last iteration of the the late 80s REM sound or even I guess the 80s REM sound because they go they go somewhere completely different without of time. Yes, it was somewhat transitionary, but and you know, you scoffed when I told you that Out of Time was not on my list because I realized <laughs> really that this album was a much bigger deal to me when it came out. Mm. And I appreciated it more. And so when I've gone back and listened to both, I really feel this one comes out ahead for me. Interesting. This album also contains what I would say is their first big pop hit and the highest charting single to date, which is Stand. Mm. It peaked at number six, which is still their second highest position of any single they've had after losing my religion. Season is calling, stand in the place where you live. The one I love from their previous album made it to number nine, but I also think that's more of a traditional R.E.M. sound, while Stan was pretty much straight-up pop. Yeah. Which is really how I think of Green. It really is kind of their truly first pop album, and maybe their only one. And we also can't go without mentioning Orange Crush, which was another great tune, although a little bit darker in theme about the use of Agent Orange in Vietnam. Yeah, the Orange Crush is the song that stands out most for me, having listened to this record in the late 80s, and one that I still go to on my, you know, my Apple Music. I think it's also interesting that this record, not only you said the first that they released after you decided you liked the band, but I think that's true for maybe the, the, the broader audience at large, because you mentioned the one I love, and then even a little bit more with End of the World as we know it. That was, that was really when they started to appeal to a larger audience. And then the follow-up to that, it, it makes sense that it had a more mainstream sound to it because that's the industry, you know? Oh, this is a band that can sell. We've got to have them record something that will sell. And you mentioned all those pop elements. That sort of lends itself to that formula. Yeah, and I had that sense about it being more poppy, and I was kind of vindicated in that belief when I read that Michael Stipe actually told the band, do not write any more REM-type songs when they were making this album. And yeah. it's true, it's just, it, it was a bit of a departure, but still a, a great record. From 1988, R.E.M.'s Green at my number 59. As they say, on with the countdown at my number 58. The highest of my picks from the past 10 years, a fun mix of blue-eyed soul, indie pop, echoes of classic Motown, and an added touch of funk. This is the 2010 debut studio album from Fitz and the Tantrums, picking up the pieces. I just 
discovered this band and this record when one of my longtime close friends actually texted me a YouTube clip with the caption, check this band out, exclamation point. It wasn't long after that that I was hooked, particularly by this song, Dear Mr. President. One of the elements I love most about discovering new music is you're often seeing a band that's hungry and trying to break through. I think you hear that on this album on tracks like Money Grabber, which is still their highest charting single. Jeff, you and I had a chance to see these guys live about five years ago at a smaller venue here in Portland, and as a live band, they did not disappoint. Hardworking, really working to engage the audience, and I think seemed to really appreciate the following that they were building. It's fun to go back and listen to this record and hear the sound of a band that's discovering that they found their sound, and now they're gonna share it with their audience. Yeah, I will say that was a fun show, but actually this is the album you should have predicted that I would kind of scoff at rather than Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> I, I don't have a big issue with it being on your list. I'm a little surprised it's this high. Hmm. Um, you did say something I didn't know. This is going to be your last one from the last decade, your highest charting one from the last decade. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I'm not a big fan. I did enjoy seeing the show. I, that's the only time I ever listened to them much was when we were going to that show. That was your idea to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I dragged you there. So I listened to a couple of their records, and yeah, they're all right. But I, I, I just, I, I, although I do like Money Grabber, the song that's playing now, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, the vocalist. I just think he sounds like, he just feels like he's shouting all the time. And um, mm. it's uh, similar to me, like to a band like The Killers, who I like better. But mm-hmm. I just get a little tired of the kind of almost aggressive, energetic feel to the songs. Yeah. It doesn't have enough uh, soul or feeling to me. Kind of hard to describe. No, no I, I think it's a really valid observation because that's something that a lot of the critics uh, wrote about their second release. You know, I think I read one that was like, God, you guys just calm down. <laughs> really? <laughs> but yeah, this one, this one I thought was more measured. Uh, I didn't feel like it was over the top in its enthusiasm. I just really liked, I guess there's also for me personally, it just came along at a time where whatever I was listening to wasn't like this. And so this, this sound had a freshness to it and it has those, those, that mix of elements I described earlier with the kind of hints of Motown and some funk, but also the blue-eyed soul piece. It's just fun to kind of go along for the ride with, with a band. Maybe it isn't going to last that long, but there is that, that interesting time in their evolution where they're really discovering who and what they are. And that's, that's kind of what I got from this one. Interesting. Well, it will be one of the ones I will be interested to see when we do this again, whenever it will be five years from now, whether it survives. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I can't say good pick, so I don't have a way to end this segment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kevin. So it's August 1984, right? Ooh, right. MTV has been around for about three years, and I've spent a good portion of that three years sitting in my basement with a lazy boy pulled up all the way to be directly in front of the TV, our 25-inch wow. color television. Like, right. They that used was... to have tubes in TVs. Remember that? Sure, sure. No, that was that was big screen back then. So I'm glued to MTV for much of that three years. Mm-hmm. And one summer evening, this trashy-looking girl wearing a skirt over black leggings, her hair messily arranged behind a big black bow with, wait for it, her belly button exposed. <gasps> 
haven't dancing and writhing against a white background with two backup dancers. And I remember thinking very distinctively, who the hell is this? Yeah, well, you, you, Tipper Gore had the same thought. And who does she think she is prancing around between greats like Stevie Nicks, David Bowie, <laughs> and Loverboy? I'm sorry, greats? Did you say Loverboy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was undoubtedly wow. my thought when you I saw first this saw her. Aff- you saw this as an affront to Mike Reno's leather pants. <laughs> exactly. But it was Lucky Star, releases a single and a video in the U.S., 13 months after the album had been released. And well, by that fall of the 1984, I was sold, and I bought the album ostensibly for my sisters as a birthday gift, but really it was because I wanted it and a little bit too embarrassed to buy it for myself. That was kind of your trick, right? Oh, I'm actually buying this. Oh, oh, this, this Culture Club album? Oh, it's for my sisters. This is my second favorite album by Madonna to this day. Mm. And I think that's because it's really just a dance record. And as I grew to love electronic music starting around the 90s, I think that's why this remains a favorite. And it's not just any dance record, though. It really set the standard for dance pop for years to follow. Burning Up is my favorite track, probably tied for my favorite Madonna song with Like a Prayer. So after my rant last episode about how they screwed up the Doors compilations, I have a similar complaint here. It seems like now on on streaming, you can only get a slightly different version of Madonna's first album. They don't have the original, the, the fully original version of this album available on streaming anymore. And it's, but it's not egregious. It's just small little things, but seemingly a little bit unnecessary. For instance, on Borderline, they have switched it to a seven-minute song oh, wow. by adding small changes, little things that don't really add anything to the song, like this part in the beginning. Oh, yeah. yeah the, the cowbell. Cowbell was a sensation for a while, Jeff. So. They, just, they just delay getting into the, the lyrics and to the, uh, the, yeah. keyboard, the keyboard little melody. Not really any reason for it. And then right. a little bit later in the song... Oh, there you go. Yeah. So I don't really get it. Why? I mean, it's not horrible. And in fact, the other change they did was to reduce Holiday, a big hit, but really kind of long and annoying after a while. They reduced that from six minutes to being under four. Okay. So I'm okay with that one. I'm okay with that change. All right. (laughs) And besides those two changes, they added a minute to the album's closer, Everybody, Mm. which was really her first underground hit. And then they added two new tracks. Uh, inferior and unnecessary alternate mixes of Burning Up and Lucky Star. I don't get it, but at least they didn't really screw up the basic appeal of this album. Seminal 80s dance pop gloriousness. Now, Kevin, when I did my bit for Like a Virgin at number 91, and I mentioned that this album would be ranked higher, you can be heard in the background saying quickly, wow. (laughs) Now, I had to edit that show, and each time I heard that, wow, it was like a stab in the gut oh, to no. know that you did not approve of my Madonna rankings. Let me see if I can replicate. It was something like, wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, 
I, nothing's changed in the time that uh, we recorded that to now. This is a Madonna record I don't listen to very much. Uh, one thing that should be mentioned is this is considered a transitional record that took us out of disco and into 80s pop, uh, 80s dance pop. There is a lot of disco that you can hear in this whole record. Not surprisingly, my favorite track on this is your least favorite, Holiday. I actually like that song a lot. I was also intrigued by the fact that you didn't really discover this until August of, uh, what would you say, 84? Uh, I didn't discover it until summer of 84, which is a full year after it came out. It didn't, wow. have, it didn't have any singles on the chart until early 84. Yes, which I believe was Holiday. Uh, it was somewhat ignored for the whole second half of 83 after it had been released. It, you know, we get Holiday got a ton of airplay uh, in Portland uh, on the hit radio station. So maybe I might have gotten a little bit earlier exposure to this and Borderline followed as well. But this really started the snowball effect. I mean, you had Holiday followed by Borderline followed by Lucky Star. Then it went right into Like a Virgin in the fall of 84. And the train was just off and rolling for Madonna. Yeah, a couple things. First, you're right. I was surprised in doing my research for this that I didn't really fully understand or know who Madonna was until a year after this album came out. That was surprising. But again, I was listening mostly to KISW. I wasn't listening to pop radio anymore by that point. Mm -hmm. And she didn't have any presence on MTV for a year, which is just kind of surprising to learn that now. Actually, that's a great point. I think Lucky Star really was the first time you saw her on MTV regularly. Right. And second of all, Holiday is not my least favorite song. What I don't Uh, like about Holiday in the original album is that it's six minutes long, and the last uh, three minutes is really just her repeating the chorus over and over and over again. It's It's just too long of that. I also want to echo your point about streaming and how when you go to listen to a song and what's offered on the streaming service is not what your memory expects. In other words, with Borderline, uh, all of a sudden it just diverts into this odd location. And that's frustrating to me too. I want to hear these songs as I remember them. And there's that happens too often on the streaming services. Okay, time now to go to The Pick Line. Hi, this is Christopher McKittrick from Los Angeles, author of Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, The Rolling Stones in New York City, and Somewhere You Feel Free, Tom Petty in Los Angeles. Since I wrote books on them, two of my favorite albums are Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones and Full Moon Fever by Tom Petty. But if you ask me tomorrow, I might say Astral Weeks by Van Morrison or Back in Black by ACDC or Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan or Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. Look, you can't go wrong with any of those albums. This is the opener to Exile on Main Street, Rocks Off by Rolling Stone. You know, hearing a call like that is somewhat of a painful reminder for me because he mentions at least two or three records in there that I have I have not spent enough time listening to. Certainly Pet Sounds, Exile on Main Street, even Blood on the Tracks. Yeah, we've talked about this before, both being deficient on the Rolling Stones front, (laughs) and I have actually traded emails with him, and he will be coming on the show later this year to enrock Trinidad into the Rolling Stones. I love it. Well, I'm interested in his Tom Petty takes, too, because as he was saying that, I was certain he was going to say, damn the torpedoes, and not full moon fever. Yeah, well, his his uh, the book he wrote was about Tom Petty in Los Angeles, and if you're going to talk about that, Full Moon Fever is the Los Angeles album for him, for sure. Yeah. Number 57. 
All right, so now let's transition to my first Radiohead pick. The one that Radiohead diehards are probably going to respond to with a groan, not because of the pick itself, because it's not high enough on my list. Kid A is Radiohead's fourth studio album and the follow-up to the hugely successful OK Computer. It's also often cited as, all caps, THE GREATEST ALBUM OF THE 2000s. But it's only number 57 on this kid's list. Because of the success of OK Computer, Kid A was highly anticipated. But the band, led by Tom York, the lead singer, decided to go in a completely new direction with their sound. Feeling burnt out on guitar rock and wary of the numerous bands that were imitating them, Radiohead used synthesizers, brass and strings, samples, loops, and even tweaked their sound using software like Pro Tools. They also deviated from standard practices at the times and didn't release any singles, didn't make any music videos, and didn't do any photo shoots for Kid A. Instead, go figure, they leveraged this relatively new thing called the internet to make the album available through this thing called streaming. Yes, 2000 was 21 years ago. The final product was their first number one album in the US selling 207,000 copies in its first week. Kid A received a Grammy nomination for Album of the Year, won the Grammy for Best Alternative Album. And in Rolling Stone's most recent list of 500 greatest albums of all time, it's number 20. So Jeff, minor confession here. I put this on the list because it is a great album, and despite the fact that I haven't listened to it enough for my own standards, songs like this one, Optimistic, I've listened to repeatedly, uh, as well as the first track we heard, National Anthem. But I'm somewhat deficient in sitting down and just listening to this probably as it should be, which is on the headphones, probably in the dark, you know, <laughs> beginning to end. But you know, Tom York, he's an interesting character. He was just fed up, basically, he said, with where they had arrived and took a huge risk. I mean, OK Computer was gigantic, and they went the other direction with this record. It wasn't just successful. It turns out they may have come up with the best album of their catalog at a time when York was really struggling with writer's block. Well, if you're Kid B for putting this too low on your list, I'm definitely Kid F or Kid X or Y, whatever, because I am sadly deficient in Radioheadology. I did buy this album when it came out. I also bought OK Computer. But sadly, I just never got enough into Radiohead, and I, you know, I'm, I will someday, and, and I believe that I will have an album of theirs on my list if we do this again in five years from now. Whoa, okay. Pressure's on, then. <laughs> I actually am a little surprised to hear you talk about this album because I didn't I haven't researched them much I thought OK Computer was kind of their departure from guitar rock but this one took more of a turn yeah I mean there's really there, there's virtually nothing that's as guitar heavy on this one uh, one of their guitarists actually in their preparatory conversations for recording this uh, really wanted to just make something melodic and York just kind of blew a gasket and was like I'm just disgusted with melody let's just do rhythm and something goofy crazy this song right here Idiotech or Idiotic I'm not sure how you pronounce it but 
unlike really anything I've ever heard before or since. I mean, I'm sure there's probably stuff by Kraftwerk that comes close to this, but I'm not a big listener of, of Kraftwerk. All right, Kevin, are you ready for an injection of one of the greatest bands of the grunge era? Of course, and I can't think of a better person to inject me. Oh, that probably doesn't sound right. I'm going to leave that in. Uh, Please leave the part where I say that doesn't sound right. Yeah. All right, I'm some liberties here and do a double shot. What did we call it? Mm. Two, two Tuesdays? Is that what we called it? <laughs> uh, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Back to back picks from a single band at numbers 57 and 56. These are the two landmark LPs from Jane's Addictions, De Los Angeles. So first up is 1988's Nothing Shocking. And if one thing is for certain about Jane's Addiction, they know how to start a song. You heard their epic opener, Up the Beach, and just when you think track two might slow things down. You get ocean-sized. And the great starts continue. That's Had a Dad, and then we go into Standing in the Shower Thinking. (laughs) Well, there's something we can all relate to. Idiot's Rule. Slow it down a bit with Mountain Song. Almost every song in this album starts cool. You know, as reasons go for putting something on your list, (laughs) I give you kudos. And then my favorite, Ted, just admit it. Not too many songs out there about Ted Bundy. Yikes. But this is the album's seven and a half minute centerpiece about, you guessed it, sex and violence. Unless we forget, perhaps their biggest song ever, Jane Says. So I sampled a lot of songs on Nothing Shocking. This actually ranks higher than uh, the second album I'm going to cover. So I'm doing them a little bit out of order here. But I really, I couldn't decide which one should be higher on my list, which one should be lower. Really, they're kind of in the same place for me. Nothing Shocking came out in 88. I really didn't know much about it until the 90s because I got Mm -hmm. into it after their next album came out. Because in the fall of 1990, a full year before 
Nevermind by Nirvana came out. Jane's Addiction dropped. Ritual de Habitual. Creado y regado de Los Angeles. Juana's Addiction. That opening guitar riff, and here we go, just the anthem of the early 90s for me and my friends in Burbank, California. This really helped launch a new era of hard rock and alternative music called grunge. Every time I hear this, it was just remember driving down the streets of Los Angeles and my Acura Integra banging my head to my recorded cassette version of this CD. <laughs> was it Maxell? I believe it was uh, Maxell uh, 90 Minutes. Yeah. Nothing shocking on one side, Ritual to Betrayal on the other. So this one became a top-selling album very quickly, as opposed to Nothing Shocking's slower-paced reception. Jane's Addiction was never a very tightly-knit group, and they broke up soon after this release, reuniting for a couple more albums and tours in the future. But Kevin, these two albums were certainly formative for my tastes in the 90s and were influential in the early days of grunge to many bands. Yeah, this was a really fun one to sample, both of these records. I had no idea that uh, Nothing Shocking was an 80s record. So I immediately started thinking, wow, okay, this is one of those bands and this is one of those records that was residing over on those left side of the dial radio stations that not all of us had really the courage to spend a lot of time with because we were more over here in the mainstream. But yeah, hearing you talk about it too, they had, you can only assume that they had a pretty, at least partial influence on a band like Nirvana. Yeah, Perry Farrell, the lead singer and uh, driving force behind this band, really was quite influential. He went on to create Lollapalooza and become a producer and a real leader in the industry of alternative music in the 90s. I really like the eclecticness, too, if that's a word. Uh, just the different sound elements that, that they managed to weave in, in and around, I guess, their, that hard rock core. Uh, like I said, when I sampled this, I, I went in fully expecting, okay, I'm just going to hear the, the grungy edgy, angry Jane's Addiction sound, but many more dimensions to what they what they put on an album. So at number 57, it's Ritual the Habitual, and number 56, Nothing Shocking by Jane's Addiction. Ooh, yeah. Number 56 for me, Legend by Bob Marley and the Wailers. Admittedly, I am a Johnny-come-lately and a novice when it comes to appreciating reggae and its all-time greats. This slot was maybe going to go to Exodus, which is their 1977 masterpiece. But I made this choice because this album, Legend, is the one I would realistically recommend to a music fan who wants to explore reggae. Legend is the best-selling reggae album of all time, with more than 11 million copies sold here in the U.S., 25 million worldwide. Jamming, the jamming was a thing of the past. 
Interesting little factoid about this record. As of January of 2020, last time they calculated, it had spent a total of 609 non-consecutive weeks in the Billboard 200 album chart, second longest run in history behind Dark Side of the Moon from Pink Floyd. It's actually been criticized for being a, what some of the critics called a deliberately inoffensive selection of Marley's less political music, removing any radicalism that might damage sales, which is kind of a fancy way of saying they put a lot of happy reggae songs together on this collection to try to sell this to white people. So, you know, I definitely Sounds felt like they succeeded. Yes. And I felt I certainly fell into that category, too. So it's sort of a confessional moment uh, for me. But I love the music. I love the sound. This is a record that is always played on my annual camping and rafting trip somewhere on a river in southern Oregon. I read one critic's comment on Wikipedia about this that says, if you're looking for mass market appeal to secular progressive America, you don't include songs that invoke collective guilt over the slave trade, nor do you address the inconvenient truth that the bucolic Jamaican lifestyle embraced by millions of college freshmen exists only because of a brutal slave trade. I think it's, it's important that has to be said because we're definitely at a time where we need to be transparent and a lot more truthful about subjects like that. Yes, great pick. Love these songs. Listen to them my whole life. I don't think I've ever owned Legend, so it didn't quite make my list just because I've never listened to it as an album much. But also interesting to hear about the whitewashing. It's not surprising. It's, it, is, it would be interesting to get into some of his original released albums. It should be said, Legend has been re-released and repackaged a couple of times. So there's really not one version that I would recommend. I would definitely recommend exploring some of the more recent versions that came out that just have some nice added bonuses. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back and we'll try to answer that age-old question. Was that confounded bridge? All right, Kevin, who do you think our guest reader is for uh, number 55? Is it someone we've had on before? No. Ooh, okay. Uh, let's go with... Ah, uh, come on. You're, it's too late. You're, it should be obvious. Mr. Hagar's not going to make our list otherwise, so at least he gets this guest spot in our in the show. <laughs> and now for something completely different. At number 55 for me is an album by XTC. It's called Skylarking. Drowning here in summer's cauldron Under mats of flower So I mentioned the pop bliss of R.E.M.'s Green. Well, this was my pop bliss of the early 90s, even though it was released two years before Green in 1986. This is the opening track, Summer's Cauldron, which is simply about enjoying summer, and it blends directly into the equally sublime grass. 
XTC was one of those post-punk alt-pop groups coming out of London in the late 70s and 80s, like Squeeze, Split Ends, Blur, and so forth. This album was their ninth release and is considered their best work. It was produced by Todd Rundgren, and the band members did not really enjoy the experience. The frontman Andy Partridge fought quite a bit with Rundgren. Despite that, the collaboration worked. On an album that's just stuffed with catchy tunes I suspect anyone would enjoy. The album ends with the song Dear God, which didn't appear on the original pressings of the album. It became a college radio hit in the U.S. as a B-side and was later added to the album. It was obviously quite controversial being about an agnostic writing a letter to God questioning his existence. Perfect for indoctrinated college liberals. Kevin, did you listen to this song? Actually, of the ones that you uh, sent me to sample, this is the XTC song I listened to the most. Being raised a Catholic, I had particular interest in hearing the message again and again. And as someone who considers himself agnostic uh, at this stage of life, um, Lots of really cool lyrics uh, in all of these selections, and I, I really like the, the balance they find in terms of melody and mood, and then little sort of moments of, of like punk rage. Just a, just, a, just a sampling of it here or there. I did not know this was an English band. I actually thought they were an L.A. band. And so I was going to ask you, is this, was this a product of your you know, getting immersed in, in them in your L.A. experience? I believe the way I got immersed in them is that their album Oranges and Lemons came out, the follow-up to this, which I also like. And it was getting a lot of radio play, and a friend of mine, Matt Rhodes, really liked Skylarking, and I just started listening to it. And it was you know four years after it came out that I got into it, mm -hmm. and it's just beautifully constructed. And it's interesting to know that they actually had kind of a tumultuous time producing it. It's also considered a little bit different from their other albums, a little less poppy, a little bit mm -hmm. more sonically structured. This definitely, for me, fits into one of those categories of, as we're doing this countdown, one that you brought to the table where I sampled a little bit of it and I thought, okay, this is this is going in the uh, Apple Music library, because after sampling was like, I want to listen to this repeatedly. So again, the band is called XTC, the album Skylarking from 1986. Dear. All right, my next pick comes from the spring of 1988. At number 55, it's the debut from Tracy Chapman, powered by the first single, Fast Car, which dominated radio that summer, and later brought the previously unknown Chapman seven Grammy nominations and three wins. You get a fast car, I want a ticket to anywhere. Maybe we make a deal. Maybe together we can get somewhere. Any place is better. At its core, this album gives you simple but elegant songcraft, captivating vocals, and thoughtful, provocative lyrics. 
It addresses important themes that still very much resonate today, most notably race relations and economic disparity. Across the lines, who would dare to go under the bridge, over the tracks? Chapman gave us a refreshing new sound at a time when the radio airwaves offered far too much soft rock, power ballads, hair metal, tired synth pop, and drum machine-filled bubblegum. Producer David Kirschenbaum in a 2002 interview said a lot of the public at the time wanted what Tracy had, and they weren't getting it. She got there at the right moment with stuff that was good. Not just good, David. Excellent. It's assaulted, ain't no reason why. News prints a story, racist tempers fight next day. I remember first hearing Tracy Chapman on the radio in college that summer of 88 and being intrigued by her sound immediately. Probably because it sounded so different from what was all over the airwaves at that time. But it also sounded authentic. This record to me validates the idea that simple can be powerful and moving. Life I've always wanted, I guess I'll never have. I'll be working for somebody else. In terms of her career, Chapman never quite reached these heights. She absolutely dominated the scene for a stretch of several months. She still puts out great music, but I look back and think she was such an instant sensation that there was almost nowhere else she could go. Yeah, she was big at the time. Very important album, I think, in rock history. Almost like a one-hit wonder in a way, which is unfortunate because she kept doing music and just couldn't stay on top, but still putting out great music for years to come after this. Yeah, probably the other song that, you know, average listener would, would recognize by her came out almost 10 years later, Give Me One Reason. Very bluesy tune, but got a lot of radio airplay. And, and again, great, great reviews. But it was almost like, you know, she accomplished her mission with this this record. And, and I always wonder if she just felt like, I don't have more to prove here. I've done something that's true to my music and my sound, and I'm just going to continue on my journey. And I like that about Tracy Chapman. It, it's refreshing because so, so many times you just see artists that all they want is more. Probably the only entry on my list that could be called country, this is Lucinda Williams' 1998 masterpiece, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Not a day goes by, I don't think about you. You left your mark on me, it's permanent, a tattoo. Really, this is just a genius blend of country, blues, folk, and southern rock. This was her fifth album, and she was someone I had never really much been aware of before this release. One critic said it offered a sense of life and place that leaped from every line and guitar lick. And I couldn't agree more. I just feel like I'm on a farm in the south on a warm summer evening whenever I hear this. These songs speaks to romance, lust, pain, and longing. Sitting in the kitchen, the house of Macon, Loretta singing on the radio. And they also speak to some of the economic Snow despair that was present in the heartland in those years.
The thing that astounds me whenever I listen to this is how every song is catchy, and it's hard to believe this many good songs exist on one 52-minute record. I got this album when it came out in 1998, right in the middle of releases by Massive Attack, Chemical Brothers, The Propeller Heads. I was in my electronic nirvana, and it really couldn't be much different from all those groups, but it was such a clear work of brilliance that it stood out nonetheless. And although it evokes the Americana of the Midwest and the South, for me, I just remember living at the beach and listening to this with so many great albums. Kevin, I wanted to sample almost every song in this record. I really recommend it highly, something everyone should listen to at least once in their lives. There's really no bad song. It has been called a perfect record, and I believe that might be true. Right away, when you started this review, you answered my most pressing question was, are we going to call this country music? And you said it's close. For me, it's about as country as, as anything I've heard. I don't, I, to me, pure country is like uh, Brad Paisley. Oh, okay, or Hank, Willi Hank Williams Jr. Yeah, that stuff. Of, okay. This is okay. much more blues-influenced, much more soul and, and rock-edged as well. Okay, well, yeah, it's funny, because from the first vocal moment when I sampled this, I immediately thought Sheryl Crow, but... As with most listenings, you sort of get past that and, and come to appreciate the artist's unique sound. And I like this a lot. Country's really not my bag, but it's that consistent blues influence. And I hear echoes of Bonnie Raitt as well when I hear this. I don't want you anymore because you took my joy. I don't want you anymore. You took my joy. You took my joy. Yeah, like I said, it was her fifth record and someone I really hadn't been aware of, but this album got a lot of airplay on a lot of different radio stations, and I'm glad I found her because she quite prominent in the country blues rock kind of, uh, she straddles all the lines there on different records. This album was placed around 300 in the ranking of Rolling Stone's Top 500 for the first two versions, but the version that came out last year, it actually jumped all the way to number 98. Hmm. So it's considered by the industry, at least, to be one of the top 100 albums of all time. I hear a lot from people that, you know, and I've been one of them to say country, the kind of music I don't like is country. Right, um, but right. again, that I think is just the, the pop country of Garth Brooks that I, uh, that I am repelled by. There is so much good country out there now. A lot of time it's called alt country. A lot of times right. it's called blues or soul as well. I hope that the idea that this being a country album does not deter from someone from checking it out. Because again, I think anyone that listens to this record will at least enjoy hearing it once. But I bet that a lot of them will add it to their playlist and listen to it again. Yeah, I think it's country with substance. That's almost the way you have to uh, describe it. Well put. Yeah, depth and substance. So again, the album is Car Wheels on a Gravel Road by Lucinda Williams from 1998 at my number 54. In the spring of 1986, a former Genesis frontman gave us one of the most enduring albums of that decade and one that transformed him from cult artist to mainstream star. At my number 54 is So by Peter Gabriel. 
song, of course, is Sledgehammer, known probably as much for the groundbreaking animated music video that was produced for MTV that was considered a game changer in terms of videos supporting a single. So was less experimental than Gabriel's previous albums, but the broad range of musical styles mixed into this collection is amazing as Gabriel fused pop, soul, and art rock with elements of traditional world music, particularly African and Brazilian styles. This album also features what is considered to be Gabriel's greatest love song, but most of us know In Your Eyes because of its appearance in the John Cusack movie Say Anything in 1989. Remember the famous scene of Cusack holding the boombox above his head? This really elevated this particular track to iconic status. Critical praise for So was pretty much universal. I'll just give you one quote that I particularly liked from Ultimate Classic Rock. This is sort of a retrospective review of the record. What makes So an important record is the way Gabriel seamlessly blended peerless pop savvy with an iconoclast's adventurous artistic instincts. His slightly twisted pop songs packed enough emotional impact, sonic surprises, and catchy melodies to make for one of the era's most consistently rewarding records. Jeff, I think that sums it up for me. Uh, so is not a record I listen to maybe more than once a year, but it's such a unique blend of quirkiness. I think they captured it perfectly in that comment and a mix of styles. And I love the fact that it was something that introduced a relatively unknown, if you can believe it, artist to the popular world. Yes, well, once a year is better than I do, and having listened to this <laughs> album a couple times in the last few weeks uh, since you picked it, I've been remiss not to listen to it more often because it's really good. It's just, I mean, it's, you've picked three songs that are like iconic songs from the 80s, and there's like three or four more on the album still that you didn't yeah. pick. That, it's, just, it's just really full of, of great stuff, and it did get me into Peter Gabriel. In fact, one of the albums I listened to in the early 90s a lot was the soundtrack to The Last Temptation of Christ. Yes, yes <laughs> because, I listened to that a lot too. Because it was it's all instrumental, but it's just because of Peter Gabriel's greatness from this album, I, right. I was uh, very interested in it. Some other cuts that you mentioned that I would recommend. The, the duet he does, Don't Give Up, with Kate Bush, which, by the way, was originally supposed to be Dolly Parton, interestingly enough. Oh. But then the very last track, this is the picture, uh, subtitled Excellent Birds. Really fun listen and just kind of goofy, but again, I think sort of captures the mastery of this record, that he was able to give you catchy, really captivating songs, but infused with his personality. So there's my pick at number 54 from 1986, So, from Peter Gabriel. And now the Pick Poetry Corner presents The Poetry of My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy by Kanye West. <laughs> you blowing up, that's good. 
Fantastic. That y'all, it's like that y'all. I don't really give a fuck about it at all. Because the same people that tried to blackball me, they forgot about two things. My black balls. <laughs> fuck SNL and the whole cast. <laughs> Tell them Yeezy said they can kiss my whole ass. More specifically, they can kiss my asshole. Have you ever had sex with a pharaoh? I put the pussy in a sarcophagus. Now she claiming I bruise her esophagus. Head of the class, and she just won a swallowship. Oh, Pink wig, thick ass, give him whiplash. I think big get cash, make him blink fast. Now look at what you just saw. This is what you live for. Ah, uh, I'm a motherfucking monster. Moving from my only country entry to my only rap entry, this is Kanye West, my beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy from 2010. I'm living in that 21st century, doing something mean to it. Do it better than anybody you ever seen. Do it, screams from the haters, got a nice ring to it. I guess every superhero need his theme music. I want We mentioned Rolling Stone's top 500 earlier, and their redone list features six Kanye West albums. Tied with the Rolling Stones and bested only by Neil Young, Bob Dylan, and the Beatles. This one is widely considered his best work, and as a poetry reading demonstrates, it's a thicket of humor, anger, rhymes, and a lot of guest stars. That's Rihanna you hear there, and you also get on this album Jay-Z, Elton John, RZA, Bon Iver, and more. Something wrong, I hold my head, MJ gone, I nigga dead. I Perhaps my favorite guest appearance is actually Nicki Minaj, who I don't really follow at all otherwise, but she delivers a viciously delicious rap in my favorite track, Monster. Despite his annoying exploits in public life, West has been at the forefront of hip-hop for a couple of decades now. I also loved his earlier album, Graduation, and his follow-up to this one, Yeezus. I really have no idea where he's going to go next because his 2020 release was a rap gospel album called Jesus is King. But we'll always have his beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy to remember him by. Kevin, I think uh, that one of the reasons I really like Kanye is he's not just a straightforward rapper as far as the, some of the hardcore rap you hear these days. It, he puts a lot of melody into his music, definitely a lot of humor, um, and he's just one of the sharper writers there is out there. I'm probably one of the uh, very small sample that hasn't really spent a lot of time listening uh, to this particular album or this particular artist. Totally respect his place in the genre and all the accolades that uh, he's received richly deserved. I'm curious, you said where is he gonna go next? It sounds like you're able to go back and listen to his earlier work and not be particularly swayed by kind of who he's become in the last year or two. Yeah, well that's why I said earlier his annoying public exploits because I mean, you know, he went kind of nuts in the past couple years as far as I'm concerned with his appearance in the Oval Office and then the gospel album, I mean, it wasn't bad, but just it just 
obviously quite a departure as he supposedly has found God or something. I, I just have, I, I haven't really followed them that closely in the last few months, so I don't know what's up. But his work, I believe, from the moment he hit the scene up through his work on Yeezus, which came out around 2013, is brilliant and it's also somewhat timeless. I think you can listen to his uh, earlier albums like Graduation and 808 Heartbreaks and so forth and not sense that they're old or anything. It all feels current. And I think it's probably safe to say that uh, his days on Saturday Night Live have come to an end. <laughs> no, I'm sure they don't take offense from a, a cheeky reference in a song. And he's actually been on there several times since he's published that song. So. Oh, okay, well, so so if you cut up a picture of the Pope, then you're, you're cut off for good. But he can make those comments. Right, okay. Got it. Bang, 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 bang. Nice reference there since I have Sinead O'Connor coming up. Yes, yes. So now for my number 53 pick. It's Rock and Soul Part 1. This is the mid-career greatest hits collection from Philadelphia's dynamic duo Daryl Hall and John Oates. So this is the lead track on the Greatest Hits collection, Say It Isn't So, and it was actually included as a new song, which was fairly unusual for a Greatest Hits collection back in 1983, but also served to promote the record in the manner that a lead single would for a traditional new studio release. So Billboard magazine has named Hall & Oates the most successful duo of the rock era. From the mid-70s to the late 80s, they produced hit after hit after hit after hit. And so with this collection, you, you not only get two of the new songs, but you also get the best of the best, including what I think still stands today as the masterpiece from the early years. This is from the mid-70s. John Oates on lead vocals, and it's She's Gone. Everybody's high on consolation. Everybody's trying to tell me what is right for me. Inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2014, Hall & Oates have had 14 of their songs played more than a million times on radio. They've also been uh, continuously recognized for their influence, not just on pop and R&B artists, but also hip-hop, where artists have praised Daryl Hall specifically for the funky beat you hear behind this song, which went to number one on both the pop and the R&B charts in 1982. Jeff, as we've uh, seen with several other artists in doing this countdown, Hall & Oates have literally countless compilation releases. There's the Essential Hall & Oates, the Ultimate Hall & Oates, blah, 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 blah. But I chose this one just because I thought it was a tight little set that really gave you the best of the 70s and the best of that early 80s period. I, I lost interest in Hall & Oates as the 80s went on, but they really had this golden period. And I think Rock and Soul Part 1 is the collection that I would hand to somebody and say that, you know, maybe a young person and say, check these guys out. Yeah, good pick. All right, moving on to mine. <laughs> uh, I can't go for that, Jeff. You, you got to say something. Pull the curtain back a little bit for the audience here. You weren't exactly... Uh, jazzed about this particular pick of mine yeah i did question it i i'm not so crazy about this collection but then i realized maybe it's just i'm not so crazy about hall and oats and 
because I look at this list and I go, well, I guess these are all the songs they had, so maybe I'm just not as into them as I thought. <laughs> the thing is that I really like this song a lot. And I also really love uh, She's Gone, which you played earlier. Right. Two great soul pop songs from the 80s. But then you, from there, you go to Private Eyes and Rich Girl and other songs I just think are kind of lame. So I realized after I questioned you on this one, I said, eh, maybe there isn't a better collection than this. And <laughs> they are a respectable and good group. I just never really loved them as much as you do, I guess. Love might be a little bit of a stretch, but I did buy two, at least two of their albums and stuck with them. There's other artists from that era or that time in, in my life where I was buying a lot of records that I just didn't stick with. But... I'll keep going with with Hall and & Oates, and it's primarily just because that of that stretch, you know, mid-70s to mid-80s. Well, you know my other issue with them. Um, hmm. uh, oh, uh, G.E. Smith. <laughs> right, yes. right, yes. G.E. Smith. G.E. His... Smith, their guitarist uh, for, I don't know how much of their career, but he was definitely in the Private Eyes video, which we yes. saw, saw way too often on MTV <laughs> in the 80s. But he was always, he just always annoyed the hell out of me as uh, SNL's front man. <laughs> Right. I understand he was a great contributor and a great leader for the SNL band, but when he was on camera, he just was smug as hell, and he always <laughs> irritated me. So that's another issue I have with uh, whenever I had to see their videos. So. You know, therapeutically, Jeff, I think we've made some real progress in this segment, sort of yes. getting you to come to grips with a few things like your distaste for G.E. Smith, but yeah. also... I, I don't know, think I'd thought of him for several years, so I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm coping. I'm, I'm moving on in my life. I think we've exercised G.E. for you. Okay, Kevin, as promised, my sister's called... The Pick Line! <laughs> and uh, I'm not even going to play music under it because we want to give them uh, the full court to uh, say their piece. Here we go. Hello, the pick line. This is Kristen. And this is Karen. And we are Jeff's identical, identical twin sisters. sisters. We're calling today from Colorado. And Kevin, you, of course, are just like a brother to us, too. So we're going to share with you our collective top ten, but this is really hearkening back to our youth when we were first feeling the influence of Jeff's musical taste and his influences. So we're going to start back with the fabled trip to Europe in 1981, one-month vacation for our family. Uh, Kristen and I were 11, and Jeff was 14. And our parents allowed us to bring a cassette player, small cassette player, and we each got to choose one album each on cassette. So... I brought, this is Kristen, I brought Billy Joel Glass Houses. Karen chose Pat Benatar, Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Jeff, of course, his pick was ACDC, Back in Black. And then our parents had a combined soundtrack of Cherry to Fire movie. And Jeff, you mentioned on an earlier podcast that one of the tapes on that trip was Queen the Game, but unfortunately, you were wrong. Wrong. So this doubles as a complaint line. Yeah. So... The next few albums also had significant Jeff influence, and those were Blondie's Auto American, Madonna's self-titled album Madonna, and Prince Purple Rain. And all three of these had influence from Jeff for various reasons. He played DJ, did some dance routines that we did in our living room. Uh, the Madonna album was 14th birthday present from Jeff, and then Prince Purple Rain, big deal for us when we were 15, and the movie was out, and we got to go to the concert um, escorted by our big brother, Jeff and our other big brother, Gary, who was an exchange student from England that year. To round off our top three, we have Queen the Game, despite its absence on that 1981 trip to Europe, The Go-Go's Beauty and the Beat, and then, of course, last but not least, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Well, that's it. Thanks, guys, for letting us talk a little longer, and we really enjoy your podcast. You guys are doing great. We tell all of our friends. Yes, we don't know who's listening out of them, but we tell them. So thank you. 
so rather than one of their picks, I'm actually playing uh, Chariots of Fire here because they shamed me into realizing that I've been recounting the story of those four albums we took to Europe and that I've always been wrong about the fourth one. It was not Queen the Game, it was this one. Ah, Chariots okay. of Fire soundtrack. And, and they this I don't know, I guess I haven't told them about this in the many years that I've recounted that story because... This, getting this phone call was the first time I realized I'd made that error. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say that list pretty much just falls in line with almost everything I was listening to at that time, too. Yeah, I know. And they actually listed two albums we have in this very episode, both Madonna and Michael Jackson. Now, only how many how many actual recordings or uh, how many cassettes did, were allowed for the trip? Four. Wow, and you drove from Puyallup to Montreal, right? No, uh, Europe's uh, Europe's actually oh, across no, the ocean. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Sorry, <laughs> I thought this was the Olympic trip. Sorry. Um, okay, that was in so seventy. That was in seventy-six. None of those albums would have been out, Kevin. God, okay, very okay, good. So Thanks we'll for just, catching we'll, me up. We'll just. Uh, we'll just so I'm in my I'm in my fifties now. So, <laughs> okay, so across Europe and four four cassettes. How many times did you guys listen to these? Over and over again. Just played all four albums and started over now you pretty much probably know the lyrics somewhere in the in the in the deep recesses of your mind you probably have the lyrics to all four of those memorized pretty much yeah i I don't think i've listened to billy joel glass house as much ever since but i know it back and forth backwards and forwards hilarious i I was actually surprised to hear blondie auto american that's not an album i was familiar with but it's kind of the more experimental one uh oh yeah it's a good uh, album tide is high and rapture you bet you bet and then one last question about that, Jeff. Tell me about this dances in the living room. Yeah, well, they uh, <laughs> they used to have their friends over, and they would uh, come up with a like a dance routine, and I would uh, I would be the DJ. And uh, of course, yeah, and uh, they would do little dance routines to some hit songs. I remember specifically, like the turntable. I would tape two flashlights to it and and turn it on <laughs> so it would be like a disco light. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I really would love to see like a maybe a YouTube reenactment. Could you do something like that, maybe? No. Okay. But thanks, Kristen and Karen, for calling in. I'm um, I'm glad to have influenced your musical tastes, and uh, thank you for calling. Oh, that was awesome. And of course, I loved how they announced themselves in unison, which sort of sounded like the pick line. Now you know what it's like growing up with twins. I'd said I don't want any more. All right, Kevin, things are starting to get thick. Interesting choice of words. What do you mean? We are kind of turning the corner for me into the music and albums I really treasure. This is my number 52. It's Sinead O'Connor's I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, and this is the opening track, Feels So Different. Feels so different. It was 1990. It was actually her second album, the one to really break her through, basically on the back of one gigantic hit. I can eat my dinner in a fancy restaurant, but nothing, I said nothing can take away these blues, cause nothing compares, nothing compares to you. Written by Prince, this song was a mega hit. It reached number one in many countries. 
but it's simply part of a fantastic collection of songs that has stuck with me for 30 years. This album revealed an artist very interested in music as an expressionist art form, and it can also be very personal for her. This song is called I Am Stretched on Your Grave, and it's actually an anonymous 17th century poem translated from the Irish. It's mostly percussive and almost chanted, and then it erupts into aggressive strings for the ending. She also wrote about miscarriages and the haunting three babies, the scrutiny placed on her as a rising star by society and the church and the emperor's new clothes, and about police brutality and killings in black boys on mopeds, obviously a theme that could resonate today. But through all of these heavy themes, the music never gets dull or preachy. She can sing in a quiet whisper over lightly strumming guitars and then erupt with fury over heavier guitar, drums, and strings. The album grows on you the more you listen. And what gets me every time are the second and third to last songs on the album. Both start very quietly with whispered vocals and light guitar, but they both build up with passion and fury. One of them is called The Last Day of Our Acquaintance about a divorce. And the other, which I can remember putting on repeat during road trips between LA and Washington State in my early 20s, is called You Cause As Much Sorrow. Parts of this album pay tribute to her deceased mother, including parts of Nothing Compares to You. This one is a devastating critique about the troubled relationship they had. The chorus kicks you in the gut every time. Kevin, there aren't many songs that really hit me emotionally, but this one is one of them. It's, it's because it's such a passionate theme and something obviously very hard for her to write and sing. It kind of punches me in the chest every time. Yeah, Jeff, this is a great pick. I. Uh... It, it much like XTC, it's one that uh, in previewing it for this episode, I immediately added it uh, to my uh, Apple Music library, and with some regret. I mean, I was obviously very familiar, like most of the world was, with uh, her her Prince remake. Nothing compares to you, but I really enjoyed previewing this record for the just range of styles that she put into it. But I think another thing you're talking about is is what she's able to give the listener through just the various tones and ranges of her voice. It's it's amazing. I, I don't know much about her career. It, how how long after this came out did the famous incident happen on Saturday Night Live? 
I think it was in the, within the next four or five years. I remember getting her follow-up uh, album to this called Universal Mother, and it got a little bit of radio airplay, and it didn't resonate with me quite as much as this one did. And she kind of faded away, and then eventually she was, she kind of went nuts, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But uh, this will always remain just one of the greatest albums in rock history. It's pretty. It's actually pretty high on Rolling Stone's greatest albums list too. And to be able to sing about you know your mother being in, causing as much sorrow dead as when you, she was alive. It takes a lot, I think, to write something like that and put it out there in the world. Um, so that's my pick at number 52, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got by Sinead O'Connor. So for my number 52, it's the last album of the short-lived Cougar era for Mr. John Mellencamp. In his 2016 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame exhibit, Mellencamp said that with this album, Scarecrow, he was finally starting to find his feet as a songwriter. And finally, for the first time, he realized what he wanted to say in a song. He wanted his songs to be more akin to Tennessee Williams, John Steinbeck, Faulkner, as opposed to the Rolling Stones or Bob Dylan. Unlike its immediate predecessors, American Fool and Uh-Huh, Scarecrow carried an overarching theme, and that was the fading of the American dream in the face of corporate greed. So Rolling Stone magazine wrote that songs such as Face the Nation, Minutes to Memories, and Small Town have a bittersweet, reflective tone. Another interesting backstory on this one from Rolling Stone that Mellencamp and his band spent a month in rehearsals playing 100 rock and roll songs from the 60s before they went into the studio to record this one. The records producer says the idea was to learn all these devices from the past and use them in a new way with John's arrangements. And you hear that on this 60s rock tribute, R.O.C.K. in the USA. So Jeff, this is my highest ranking Mellencamp pick. I'll have one more before we finish the countdown, but pivotal record for him. But this marks the first time I think Mellencamp starts making real statements about America, about politics, about economics, et cetera, et cetera, in his music. And he goes on to do it more times down the road as his career extends from the 80s into the 90s into the new century. But I think this sound hitting its stride before he decided to do something completely different with the next one, Lonesome Jubilee. This to me is one of the great American albums. And I like that it's in the same episode with Car Wheels on the Gravel Road. To me, they're both iconic albums, actually, you know, 15 years apart, but they really sing to America. And these people both were born in America and lived their lives in rural America and I just always think of Scarecrow that way and when I listened to it again this week for the first time in years it just mm -hmm. brought back that feeling you know in droves Did I listen to it 
pretty often, a few times a year at least. And it's, of course, just came out in 1980, uh, summer of 85. And so we're, we're already into the second half of the Reagan era. And so you, listening to it now, you start thinking about, wow, he's, he's talking about all these different things that were going on politically. So it never, it never gets old for me to listen to that. In 1993, we were in our 20s, and we got the only chance to hear a brand new studio album from Nirvana after they had exploded with Nevermind. This album is in utero. Despite the huge success of the previous album, the band was not exactly pleased with it, feeling it was a little too polished. Kurt Cobain said that In Utero will reveal both of the extremes of Nirvana's sound, saying, It'll be more raw with some songs and more candy pop on some of the others. It won't be as one-dimensional as Nevermind. And while I never really thought Nevermind was one-dimensional, you definitely can hear the difference here. It's certainly what we get in the first two tracks. But the band did acquiesce to some additional polishing and remixing of what became the album's two biggest hits, including Heart Shaped Box. And All Apologies. Those two songs stand in contrast to the rougher edge of the first two tracks I played, and that's really how the band wanted it. They had no desire to meld their different sounds to achieve some more kind of consistency. There would always be the edginess in some songs and more pop leanings in other songs, such as in the Beatlesque track, Dumb. In Utero was recorded over a span of only two weeks. Cobain was said to have recorded all of his vocals in just six hours, and producer Steve Albini mixed the album in just three days. The record company was certainly concerned about the rough and rushed product, but it nonetheless became a smash hit and is considered one of the greatest albums in rock history, even if it's sometimes eclipsed by the far more revered Nevermind. Rape me again. Kevin, I remember being pretty excited about this release, and, and I remember when I heard the first two fairly abrasive tracks, that I kind of felt maybe we'd hit a rocky section of the road, but mm -hmm. the whole album is quite an adventurous listen, and in preparing for the show, I'd been reminded it's one I need to listen to more often. So when you first uh, heard it when it came out as the follow-up to Nevermind, was it something you were instantly excited by, or did it take a little while to get used to? No, I was excited by it. I, uh, the first two songs, you know, they employ like out of tune guitars and just, you know, really rough edges on the first two songs. And then it goes into Heart Shaped Box and you realize what they're doing. And it just, the whole album is like that. It's up and down, rough to smooth. So as a full listen, you definitely could sense it was more dynamic and diverse than Nevermind and definitely a worthy follow up. And you were so excited what they were going to do next and then sadly he died the next year and that was going to be it 
Yeah, when I listen to this again, that's that's the thought that went through my head is I'm hearing a transitional album. I'm hearing echoes of Nevermind. I'm hearing them explore new ideas. And I'm left feeling like, wow, I can't wait to see where they're going to go next. And as you said, tragically, you're not able to do it. And so going back to listen to In Utero, that thought recurs to me of like, wow, what could have been with this group? Rain, 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 rain. 1993's In Utero by Nirvana, the first Nirvana album we've had on the show. And it's at number 51. And now we go to your number 51, which is also the first appearance of a very important band. Exactly. My first of multiple picks from these guys. It's the fourth Police album, Ghost in the Machine, from the fall of 1981. It's the album that validated and solidified their status as the world's biggest band. Led by the first release, Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic, which reached number three on the Billboard chart, Ghost in the Machine marked that rare achievement that we see from the most successful acts, producing an album that continues their ascendance to superstardom. The police had broken through in the U.S. in 1980 with their third album, which featured two top ten singles, but Ghost in the Machine was the highly anticipated follow-up, and it did not disappoint. Spirits in the Material World is the lead track, and it was the second single, and it peaked at number 11. Both of these songs received mega heavy rotation on MTV, and this was really the first time the band was actually seen consistently on the music channel. Videos from their previous albums were out there, but they were not in the MTV library at the time. Ghost in the Machine was also much darker in its overall mood than the previous Police albums, and it didn't have as much of their signature rock reggae blend. The track Invisible Sun exemplifies this mood shift, a song about living in a war-torn country, specifically Northern Ireland. Ghost in the Machine also marked another significant shift in the police's sound as Sting, further asserting his creative control, brings in synthesizers and the frequent use of a saxophone, heard here on one of the best tracks, I think, in their entire catalog. From side two, this is One World, Not Three. But Jeff, this is one of the few times on this record they give you that reggae flavor. Um, but it's and it's a, it's kind of a nice break from the really kind of dark, somber tunes on this album. But uh, the Police were about at the pinnacle. They they went out on top with their next record. But once this album hit the airwaves and got all that rotation on MTV, there just wasn't any doubt as to their status as kings of the mountain. Yes, excellent pick. I can't remember for sure, but I think Ghost in the Machine was the first full album that I really knew by the police. I remember either owning it or recording it from someone in my high school years. And you said earlier that it was a little darker, and that was kind of my feel of it back when I listened to it. It just felt a little darker, and, and perhaps it had to do with 
the opener, most of all. A little bit dark instrumentally, but also just being about spirits of the material world. It felt kind of ghostly and mysterious. <laughs> and I didn't really uh, listen to their earlier albums until college, but this, this is a great pick. I, I loved listening to it again uh, this last week. So how big were you into The Police before this album came out? Interestingly enough, they, they actually came to Portland on this tour, but alas, you know, being the preteen that I was, I just wasn't quite old enough to be allowed to go. So always had that little unfinished business that I finally got to uh, check the box for when they did their reunion tour in 2007. So at number 51, you managed to squeeze in The Police before, mm-hmm. we, before we launch our, our top 50. Yeah. I managed to squeeze in one Nirvana before we enter the top 50. I think we're yes. we're now poised nicely to move into the top 50. Well, I, I what I'm really curious about as we get into the top 50 is the picks. We're going to have a lot of overlap, a lot of just, you know, uh, iconic, famous, all-time great albums will show up. And it'll be fun to look at where you choose to place them where I versus where I choose to place them. And I, I'm I'm going to give a little sneak peek. I think in our next 10, I'm going to have a couple that are going to drive you nuts <laughs> because, of, because I know they're favorites of yours and they landed in that group for me. I don't know. The 40s, the 40s is pretty good. Still. Yeah. I mean, I know we, we, we have uh, uh, similar tastes, but, you know, we definitely have different rankings and what we like the best. Well, I'm, yeah, and I think you said it perfectly there. You're really splitting hairs from this point on. Yeah. You probably can't beat my revelation that there's no police albums on my list at all. <laughs> so I, I felt like I was, now, like, you know, I felt like, you know, I'm betraying a friend when I told you that. Oh, yeah. No, I've, I've had a sense of betrayal for several weeks now. <laughs> all right. So that concludes another episode of the Pick 100. And we move on to the top 50 next time around. Until then, be sure to check out the website, thepickcast.com, where you can see all of our 50 picks so far with links to playlists and to every album. Music for the pick is by Audio Nautics. Until next time, I'm Jeff Payne. And I'm Kevin Toon. Thanks for listening, everybody. So long. 